is gonna be too easy. I randomized the route to give you a chance, but fair warning. If you see any Romulans, run. They don't f around. That's neutral zone 101. Oh, okay, cool, cool. So you know all about the uncharted black holes, rogue planets, and dangerous nebulas. Rogue planets? See you at the finish line, fam. Or maybe I won't. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton being controlled by butt bugs. <laughs> and this week we're here to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, episode five, the halfway point of season three, Reflections, as well as we're going to talk a little bit later about a uh, very cool experience Tyler got to have as well as the first three episodes of Andor. But first, Lower Decks. Tyler, we're at the halfway point. Now, we talked last week about how it felt like an episode four. Sure. Did this feel like a sort of milestone halfway point? Yeah, I think this is far and away the strongest episode since the premiere. I th This is one from showrunner, creator Mike McMahon, and uh, we delve more into the uh, the background of uh, Rutherford that was being set up in season one with uh, kind of some flashbacks. But essentially, it's a story of uh, Rutherford kind of fighting with his former self within his head. Uh, we went there last season uh, inside uh, Picard's psyche in the episode Monsters, uh, which is uh, the Star Trek Picard episode, which is absolutely terrible. And um, I, I think this is done far better. And we also had like a, a, a funnier sort of a B story taking place on this uh, planet while uh, we, we saw Mariner and uh, one Boimler manning a recruitment booth. Uh, I, I got some laughs out of that. Overall, uh, this is a this is a strong episode. I think it was well balanced. It didn't feel like manic as we often have accused uh, Laura Dex of being, and had something to say about the character um, and what comes next for him. I, I'm very curious, Cam. We we had a very uh, clouded in mystery sort of senior officer uh, being showcased in the flashback that one Rutherford was experiencing. I don't know. Is this an Admiral Pressman type? Is it Admiral Pressman himself? Uh, or or uh, is it somebody just that we've never even considered before? Okay, so where I come down on that is I don't think it's Section 31. And I was thinking about, you know, you look at Seasons 1 and 2 of Lower Decks. And a big part of the mythology they built up was the Paclids. So, like, it was a swerve. It was not like your typical Klingons or Borg or whatever. So, this to me feels like something they're going to set up that is going to be unexpected. And, uh, you know, it's it's a comedy show. It's going to be something that's funny in concept, but that they're going to play with. So, Pressman, like, you could definitely do something funny with. But I think, you know, anyone who's thinking Section 31, I don't think that's accurate. Because I don't think there's any real comedy to that. I think it's going to be a reveal that genuinely feels you know, hopefully true to where the story's going, but also something that has a comedic sensibility about it. Yeah, I, I mean, this individual is wearing a, uh, what looked to be a Starfleet uniform from like the next gen era. So that was something to note. I, uh, but do, uh, do you think it's going to be somebody that we'd recognize from Star Trek canon? Or do you think they just want to go, as you say, kind of do some sort of swerve and, and play with some sort of new character? 
it, I guess with this one, I struggle to think of a way to reveal something that's, you know, fun and gets people, you know, hopefully laughing if it's not recognizable. Because they're like wearing Starfleet uniforms. I, I don't know of like a comedic angle on that. Like, I don't know that there's like an alien reveal that would be that amusing. It's clearly something within Starfleet, at least it seems to be. So, like, that's why I feel like it's going to be a character. But then at the same time, I struggle to see how a character reveal works for people that aren't Trek fans. Like, Admiral Pressman, love to see Pressman back on Star Trek. That would be amazing. You could do so much fun stuff with him. But does that, like, work for anyone outside of hardcore fans? I, I think I was more being kind of facetious with Pressman. I think that sure. man is in jail for a long, long time, and uh, he would have been wearing an admiral's uniform. I, I also don't think that the, the timeline quite matches up. But I'm just wondering if there's what you know. The, uh, it, it's funny that Starfleet seems to be full of a lot of bad apples, and I'm just wondering if there's maybe a bad apple that they might bring back uh, just for comedic purposes, or at least for like a knowing nod to at least big portions of the audience. Or could it be the return? You know, we had Conspiracy, uh, the episode Conspiracy, teasing. Could it be a final payoff to that arc? <laughs> you know, that'd be amazing. Only 30 years later. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like, so. to me, that... It, if you, I don't know that it's going to be conspiracy. That's, that feels like a bit of a stretch. But like, it feels like the sort of thing that if you brought that back, you could convey that to people that aren't Star Trek fans very easily and still make that funny. Whereas like, I, I really genuinely struggle to think of a, a name of a character from the TNG era or Voyager or anything like that, that would really be a great reveal for a general audience. Yeah. Uh, look, I'm sure we'll have something more. I, I, do you think they get to this by the end of the season, or do you think we'll have to wait one more season to find out maybe the identity of this uh, masked fella? Well, okay, you look at season two, and a big part of the ongoing story of season two was the Packlids. We're halfway through season three. We don't really have an established overarching theme of the season, so I think it's going to be this Rutherford story. The fact that, okay. you know, we had the tease in the finale. We had this at the halfway point. It feels like the sort of thing they're going to, I think, I'd have to imagine pay off by the end of the season. And then we'll move into something else for season four. Okay. Yeah. I Look, I, I'm interested in what they're doing with Rutherford. It's not the mystery box sort of stuff that annoys me. Like this is actually doing mystery box in, uh, in a good way. It actually kind of works and it's not frustrating. So I'm down for this uh, right here. Um, do you think that this other version, this younger version of Rutherford, he's kind of what um, they always wanted Tom Paris to really be when Voyager started out? Hence the, uh, the <laughs> nod to the Delta Flyer, which looked amazing uh, in those action sequences, by the way. Yeah, it's almost like they envisioned a world where uh, Nick Locarno was the Tom yeah. Paris character on Voyager, and we had the two dueling sides. Like, this episode, I mean, it really did work for me as well on a character level, and you referenced Picard to Monsters, and that was an episode that did not work for me on a character level. It's funny that the, you know, 25-minute animated show really nailed this, and it also felt like a very classic TNG setup. Like, we've seen a lot of episodes like this where something goes, you know, awry. It reminded me, you know, a little bit of, like, um, initially I was writing down, like, you know, Mind's Eye, the Geordie LaForge episode where he's being controlled. But, like, um, we've seen, like, various stories like this, and I f thought they found a very interesting way to use it as a character exploration of the character, but also make it 
fun. And yeah, like I liked that it revealed a lot about Rutherford and it did what I think a lot of these, you know, franchises can do best, which is it gives fans something they don't know they wanted. I never really thought about Rutherford's backstory that much. And the fact that they spent, you know, this half hour fleshing that out and giving us this <laughs> very douchey young version of Rutherford, yeah. I thought was both very funny and unexpected, but also worked dramatically. So, okay, this is, I think they established this as Rutherford from 10 years ago. And this procedure happens when he was, I guess, a first year cadet. I think that's what they said. And so... How old is Rutherford supposed to be as an ensign? Is he like a a, a 30-year-old ensign at this point? I think 30 is definitely... Yeah, I I think he could be 30. I think that sounds about right. Okay. Isn't that a little old to be an ensign? You know, no offense to Mariner. (laughs) Um... Or, or okay, Harry wait, Kim, wait. or or Hoshi Sato, or Travis Mayweather. You know, I take it back, Cam. It is not too old to be a, a, an ensign. I apologize for even bringing that up. <laughs> I was going to say, if we go through the ensigns of Star Trek, does 30 seem old? But yeah, I guess it works. Plus, we're going to have a young ensign on the bridge when we have um, <laughs> Alton Soong on the bridge for... Um, uh, Picard season three, of course, as well. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> he just finished up Starfleet Academy with Elnor. so there's no age limit on being an ensign um yeah i guess that makes sense for the character but like had you really thought that much as this show has progressed we're in season three now had you thought about rutherford's backstory that much no but i also say um beyond uh boimler living life on the vineyard with those uh (laughs) babes that really want him um i haven't really considered the backstories too much of the other main characters you know i kind of get what the deal with uh freeman uh her mom dad would have been like uh back uh, in in that starfleet life and uh well i guess i'm a little curious about like tendy not being you know the typical sort of orion pirate um but rutherford no it never really occurred to me he just seemed kind of like a, a pretty straightforward kind of dude yeah, I mean, I guess we got a lot of um, teasing stuff going on with Tendi in the episode where her and uh, Mariner went on the um, the um, kind of road trip. The we'll we'll always have Tom Paris episode where she we found out like she had a crazy and um, Orion name where it was like Queen of the Winters something or other. Like she had sort of this history of very interesting things, but we've never gotten it laid out. I would kill for actually a Tendi flashback B story or heck A story. Um, but yeah, like I thought this was done really well and I liked that they did it in a way that really worked dramatically, but also was like funny, you know, when we had like the white void where it's the two of them standing there and I'm like getting the, uh, you know, the reminders of like the prophet stuff with Cisco. Um, it's the sort of tropes that the show was pointing out. It wasn't like a laugh right episode, but it found a way to be compelling in that way, but still kind of highlight things that are amusing. Well, that's just it. And also uh, an episode like Tapestry uh, with mm-hmm. kind of that white background. But uh, you're right. This wasn't a laugh, right? But um, neither was the previous episode. Yet I found this one, Reflections, to be far more captivating than uh, the previous weeks. And look, there, there's some good laughs, you know, like um, even just the douche version of uh, Rutherford saying, <laughs> Trill, huh? Do those spots go all the way down? It's just like cringe, <laughs> cringe, you know, but... Um, yeah, there, there's other good stuff. And like, look, wa- watching um, Boimler have a complete meltdown when somebody grabs his pip, you mm-hmm. do not touch 
a Starfleet officer's pip. I already know that, you know. But um, uh, yeah, that 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 was all funny. And look, I I found this to be, uh, you know, as I think we both agree, like a very compelling episode without it needing to be kind of a laugh riot. Which I found, I think episode one is still the funniest one that they've done so far this season. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, like the last one, the previous one, I feel like was trying to be funny, but it really didn't deliver like the big laughs. That felt more like your wacky episode. Um, yeah. This one felt more character-driven. It still worked in humor, but it it wasn't by design, like, as trying to be as funny as the um, the premiere. But I thought it was a very solid episode and one that I genuinely found rewarding on a character level. Which, it is crazy how often Lower Decks is able to do these types of stories and have me walk away feeling something about the character's journey. Whereas I will sit through, like, ten episodes of Picard or, you know, like a lot of Star Trek Discovery and just get nothing. It's just interesting how I think people tend to think like, oh, you need time. You need to spend lots of time going over these character arcs to really deliver. And yet I've seen, you know, in a fairly brief running times, both this and Prodigy really deliver. Yeah, it. I, I, I'm just... <laughs> I think it me. It's just a matter of like making the audience invested in the stakes and the characters, and it's not that hard to do. Like I, I think part of the problem is like if you're trying to go at like this breakneck speed in terms of plot, 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 that's where you lose me. And I think that's where the first half season of uh, Lower Decks did kind of like uh, uh, irk me a little bit. But I think they thought like, I think this is the perfect tempo for the show. You know, like a A story and a B story, and you can have kind of the varying you know. Um, uh, laughs in one story versus something that's just a little bit more compelling about what's going on in this person's personality. And so I think that's great. I can't, one of the things I was thinking about during like this uh, whole, uh, you know, takeover of Rutherford's body is they're like, oh, you're an uh, anaphasic alien. And like, we've always talked about kind of the, the body swapping sort of stuff. Uh, one thing I think would be kind of cool, they haven't ever tried before in Star Trek. What if it's more of like kind of a, a body swapping arc in that... Mm. You don't actually realize maybe uh, that in episode, let's say episode one of a season, that your uh, first officer uh, has body's been taken over by an alien. But there are maybe like subtle hints. You know, you don't see it happen, but you know, like uh, you're, let's say it's Ransom. He gets somebody's name wrong or he doesn't remember, he can't remember off the top of his head, you know, what city he's from. And but it's not really remarked on. It's just kind of like okay, okay, that happens. And then you kind of build it up over the course of like you know two more episodes. And, you know, I, I and I go back because the the closest we had to that was when uh, Bashir was being uh, imposterized by the uh, and that's a word people uh, by the Changeling uh, way mm-hmm. back in season five of Deep Space Nine. And like so, there's stuff going on like he's delivering babies performing brain surgery and then we find out two episodes later he's been a changeling this entire time you're like wow okay that's that's impressive um so i i think it'd be cool if they kind of made subtle hints but didn't hit the audience over their head that maybe something might not be right and they don't resolve it for maybe you know a couple episodes like that's more the serialization that i prefer yeah well i'm glad you mentioned the bashir thing because that's what i was thinking of as well and i thought that reveal is very fun, but one of the great missed opportunities was not having those moments that kind of tease that something might be awry, because I think you could do so much with that, as you said, spanning over a few episodes, and I think if it is like a body swap thing, you could do really funny things on Lower Decks with that, like you, you could make it a little more heightened, a little more fun, and I mean... It's the sort of idea that just is made for animation as well. Like, you could do it so easily. 
So I think that's something I would hope that would be in the back of their heads for potentially in the future. Um, I was going to say, too, just with this story, I like that once they had their kind of high concept setup of, you know, the red eye um, Rutherford taking over, I like that they didn't prolong that. I thought they did a really good job balancing just how long to kind of stretch that out before having it quickly, you know, exposed as younger Rutherford being behind it. So it didn't feel like I was being ripped off of a fun concept. It yeah. felt like they took it as far as they could, had a fun sol- you know, solution to it. Um, you had Tendi also cluing in fairly quickly. And then you got to deal with actually what it all meant. It didn't feel like we need to stretch this high concept as long as we can. I, I agree with that. And it's like, uh, I'd rather like us wish that we spent more time doing something rather than feeling like, okay, you've dragged this out. And and that was one of our big complaints, especially with um, Discovery in season four, where they kind of, they were beaten dead horses all season long. It was essentially like a four episode arc stretched over like 12 or 13 episodes there. And I think if you're able to condense that even just within an episode itself, I, I think that's good. That That's why, you know, I'll say it again. I really like the tempo of this episode here it just kind of feels kind of like the kind of the pitch perfect way to do this series versus I like I honestly think that they've been learning like like what works and what doesn't work throughout the course of this show over two and a half seasons now yeah they really have I think and uh the opening teaser of Rutherford waking up from the bad dream reminded me a lot of the Riker falling asleep in like the poetry recital <laughs> teaser uh, schisms <laughs> yeah and or, schisms or, yeah, yeah, yeah where I was like when I saw it I was like okay <laughs> as the opening credits kick in it's like i hope that was intentional because you and i have joked about that schisms opening but it does set up the episode but in a way where you're just like what the hell was that cam do you think modern television could get away with a, a teaser like that at this point no no, no way. way not unless it's like a like full-on joke but in a dramatic like hour-long drama there's no way Let's pr- picture it's uh, it's uh, Breaking Bad, and um, <laughs> Jesse's at uh, uh, Walt Junior's uh, recital, uh, uh, you know, chorus recital or, or for some reason I don't know why, and then he 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 falls asleep. You're like, okay, that doesn't see- sound like uh, the the most thrilling, uh, tense way to start your episode. To be fair, though, Breaking Bad did have those kind of you know confusing. Um, pre-teaser or pre-credit sequences i think of like the stuffed animal that's like laying by the pool or whatever and it's just doing like close-ups and then cutting to the opening titles where you didn't really know what you were seeing so i can kind of see them getting away with something like that but that's um cinematically much more interesting than just like (laughs) whatever walter white falling asleep or whatever yeah, well, you know, I, I realize now Breaking Bad is probably a terrible example for me to give because, like, the teasers, they were always, like, little, like, mini movies. Mm-hmm. Like, always, like, within, like, like I don't know, 90 seconds to, you know, two and a half minutes, they made, like, these kind of set pieces. There would often be, like, flashbacks uh, that would kind of inform what the episode's about thematically. There's even stuff where, uh, you know, Danny Trio shows up for for a very very short amount of time and it kind of tells a full story there and mm-hmm. but it also informs like what's to come uh, to a certain degree and so uh all that is to say is uh, I, I picked the wrong show to use that as an example for yeah like you can't see many other like cbs shows 
doing that sort of thing. Yeah, that's how you that's how you start CSI Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> uh, William Peterson's character just starts to nod off while watching Jeopardy. Sadly, he's left the show at this point. <laughs> he came back for one season and he was like, I'm out. <laughs> he got his paycheck and that, that was good enough for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I also thought was pretty fun about this episode was the classic Star Trek swashbuckling archaeologist type. Bringing that back to the show. I thought we've had a number of those, Vash most notably, but there's been a few of them along the way on Star Trek. And I thought they had a lot of fun with the competition between her and Mariner. I was surprised they didn't get like a celebrity voice because I was thinking the whole episode, this must be somewhat of note, but it seems like it was just kind of one of their regular recurring guest cast members. But great character i think they should have brought back the entire crew from gambit uh the uh, two-part episode <laughs> in tng uh renegade archaeologists here do you think that this independent archaeologist guild is going to be enticing enough for mariner who apparently has a degree in xeno history for her to jump ship by the end of this season i think that's kind of what they might be going for here yeah i think that I, do you think they would end the season with Mariner leaving to go do this? Or would that be too similar to Boimler leaving to go serve with Riker? I think I could see that happening. Uh, you know, yeah. Mariner jumping chip, so to speak. You know, I, I think you, know, you kind of set it up and she even had that very longing look in her face. And I also wonder what they're ultimately building up to with the whole Ransom Mariner dynamic in that he's making sure that she's going to stay on the ball. And look, she didn't screw up this time. Do you really think that Mariner can avoid screwing up for the rest of the season? Not a chance. And I do yeah. think, you know, there's something very attractive too about just the concept of an episode of Mariner being this like daredevil, spacefaring archaeologist. You know, I don't need to see an entire season arc, which is what, you know, maybe one of the other Star Trek shows on the air right now might do. But like, I think you could have a very fun episode um, built around that. Yeah, and by that, you're, you're talking about how Strange New Worlds is going to be an entire season surrounding uh, one uh, 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 Anson Mounts leaving to go do archaeology for all of season two. I don't think Strange New Worlds would do that, thank God. But I will say, I think Anson Mount could pull off swashbuckling archaeologist. I can picture him in the Indiana Jones uh, costume for sure. <laughs> Maybe he can take over from Harrison Ford after the next Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> No, I'm still banking on Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> still banking on it. Uh, okay, if not Shia LaBeouf, Cam, how about Ezra Miller? Perfect. Perfect. Perfect, perfect choice. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, look, uh, you know, there, there's a couple other moments that I, I really did like, you know, like the conspiracy truthers. Mm -hmm. um, they came over and they're talking about the so-called butt bugs that appeared in uh, the conspiracy episode that we were talking about from season one of Next Gen. And then the whole whatever happened to Cisco sort of deal. <laughs> I, I, I don't ever think we'll ever touch on whatever happened to Cisco ever in Star Trek. I just think it's something that's kind of like best left alone. I think that <sighs> there's only the potential to kind of ruin the ending for Deep Space Nine if they want to resurrect his ultimate fate or legacy somehow. I agree it's best left alone. The question is, will it be? I get a little nervous when I... I can't remember if it was Alex Kurtzman or someone else associated with um, Star Trek right now saying, like, we're really looking at Deep Space Nine right now. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm all down for bringing back, you know... Bashir or Ezri or something like that 
on a Star Trek show. Like, that could be fun to see. But I get a little nervous about the idea of, you know, the people that are running Star Trek now deciding to explore further DS9 mythology. I would prefer standalone character stuff. Let's not be revisiting some of the decisions made by that show. Okay, I, I'll only agree to it if you bring Dukat back from the uh, the fire caves. <laughs> oh no! No, yeah. you and I complained that uh, you know that character's arc was wrapped up after the uh, invasion arc. <laughs> Can you imagine if they dragged him back again? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, look, I, I I'll say this: the fact that like Avery Brooks has just disappeared, like just mm-hmm. fallen off the face of the earth, I I think it'd be a kind of a tough proposition like recasting him i'm not saying that doesn't mean that you can't you know somehow allude to what cisco's journey ultimately ended up being but it just it would seem almost like too sacrilege for them to touch upon that because it had such an impact on the series whereas i i could see them like i don't know having odo come back somehow um, I don't know, maybe pull the whole Star Trek prodigy technique and like cutting Renea Bergeron's uh, lines up and, and uh, inserting them somehow. But I think if you're going to touch on Deep Space Nine again, I think it's far more likely that you maybe get a Quark appearance or a Kira appearance more than, say, the return of Cisco or Odo. Yeah, I think both of those feel like the most likely candidates to me. I could see someone showing up on lower decks, maybe like, I don't know, like... Lower Decks has been a little, I think, smarter about just picking, not obscure characters, but maybe characters you wouldn't expect to see pop up again and have them show up. So I could see someone else from DS9, but in terms of like the live action stuff, it feels like to me, Quark is entirely viable. Although I don't know that Armin Shimmerman seems as interested in doing it in live action versus animation. Um, we'll see. I we'll think see. he's just—he has zero interest in doing that makeup, like zero interest. And I think that we had that line uh, from over the summer. Uh, he was speaking at a convention, and he's just saying, "Like, look, if you want to unload tons and tons of cash on me, I'll think about it." But I believe him. Like uh, when it's like, "Why am I really doing this?" Whereas I don't know, it doesn't seem like that difficult a proposition for like one and all visitor to return. Like, put on you know twenty-five minutes worth of wrinkly nose. And I'm sure she'd get a hefty paycheck and, I don't know, bring her back in uh, live action. I think that would be awesome to see. Yeah, like, she feels like one of the characters, to me, like Bashir or Ezri, where you can continue their story in a way where I'm not going to feel ripped off or annoyed by the decision-making. Some of the others, like Odo, Cisco, I don't really want any resolution or further exploration as to where those characters are. I would like to leave them with where they we left them in DS9. But there's still places to go with, you know, at least a handful of the characters. I'm just very worried if this is Kurtzman and company, are they going to bring back Morn and he'll he'll face the same fate as Icheb? <laughs> oh no, oh no. And that's like the motivation for Quark to do something? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My best customer! <laughs> <laughs> there's still uh, Latinum in his belly. <laughs> Now, speaking of DS9 characters, we had um, Petra Aberdeen showing off the Nagus's staff at the yeah. end of this Lower Decks episode. What happened there? How did Rom let this go? Uh, do you think Rom is still the Grand Nagus? <laughs> Most likely, no. We talked in the past about how it seemed like Rom would be... not Good things would not happen to Rom in that job position. Quickly assassinated by a brunt sort of character, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. Which is unfortunate. I like Rom, and his journey was hilarious. Uh, you know, just seeing how he just started off as like a complete jerk, a complete jerk of a character. And this, is, of course, is when they're still figuring out what the characters were going to be like. But um, I just, I don't see this man lasting long as Grand Nagus. And I think by now uh, his staff is gone, and uh, so is his reign as the Grand Nagus of the uh, Ferengi Alliance. Yeah, but that said, now my the wheels are spinning for me, and I'm like, I think Rom could actually be a really fun and unexpected character to bring back on Lower Decks, and not one who would be picked up most likely by a Picard or whatever future shows are out there. I think you could do a lot with Rom, actually. Well, I, I think realistically, like from a practical level, it would make sense that he's not Grand Nagus, but I think if you're going to bring him back into Star Trek, he still would be the Grand Nagus here, and I, I could totally picture him being Grand Nagus Rom here in Lower Decks. And also just Max Gronichek's voice work. It, it's very distinct. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're going to have to hear him call out Mookie's name at one point for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to. And I mean, we might be able to get like a mini Frankie reunion on Lower Decks in a way that I mean, they're small enough, happen. Cam. You don't have to call them mini Ferengis. <laughs> but yeah, like you're not going to get that on a live action show, but you could really do it in animation very well. Um, the way that like Family Guy had that TNG, you know, reunion in an episode way back in the day, you could do something with the Ferengi on Lower Decks that isn't going to require getting those actors into makeup again. It would be very easy to do. Well, the uh, Family Guy TNG reunion turn up being far more satisfying than season three of Star Trek Picard Camp. Oh, no. Is that the fear? Is that the fear? It wasn't before, but it is now. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm fingers crossed. I am going in with the, giving them the benefit of the doubt, but my expectations I like very low. So maybe that, that'll work for me. But uh, just the, the uh, Picard folks just haven't really given me much reason to think that um, they're capable of pulling this off in a satisfying manner. The only... You know, spark of hope for me with um, Picard season three is that it's a different showrunner than the first two seasons. Yep. yep. So, you know, I mean, it's weird because like after the, you know, um, showrunner of season one left, I was like, okay, well, I didn't care as much for Picard season one. So this is a good shakeup. And then at the end of season two, I was like, why can't they bring back the showrunner of season one? (laughs) So hopefully this one is a step in the right direction. It's really, I was thinking about this yesterday. I realized, like, uh, as much as we complain about season one of Picard, I think it was just, like, a ten times better season than what we got in season two. Yeah, it was. Like, it had a lot of writing problems. A lot. Um, a lot of, like, things set up, not paid off. But, like, I can kind of hold that one together in my mind as a season-long story better like i don't think season two justifies itself as a season-long story whereas i'd say season one does yes yeah um okay Uh, look i did i also like the conversation they had about the ever-changing style of starfleet uniforms you know um we were just talking about this not too long ago uh maybe like two weeks ago and you know like uh, boingler even commented like well our style isn't across the whole fleet but they're on the california class and somebody's like well why do you always change them and i liked his response there's always room for improvement. Look, <laughs> a flap. <laughs> that was perfect. If Star Trek were like a merchandising juggernaut, the constant changing of outfits would make so much sense because that would you know be just 
fodder for action figures and various merchandising efforts, but like the fact that they don't produce that much Star Trek merch actually makes yeah. it more confusing as to why they constantly revise them. I'm at the point where I just like I find it amusing that they change uniforms so frequently that I, it's just more of a uh, a feature, not a bug of the series, as maybe I, I used to think it was. But like when we go into season four of or season three of Picard, I think it'll be the fourth time in three seasons that they've uh, showcased different looking Starfleet uniforms. When you include the uh, flashback sequences in uh, season. A one up a card and uh-huh. that, that is a lot of change like that it's a lot of inconsistency and it's a lot of um top creatives not being satisfied with what was being delivered yeah it is an interesting choice because like i can kind of understand why with each of the different star trek shows on the air they want different looking uniforms just to give each one a visual stamp you know like the discovery uniforms really do stand out the, the previous ones like the dark blue ones they wore for seasons 1 and 2 really stood out from like what they were doing on Picard and the lower decks ones stand out as well and i think strange new worlds has done a good job visually separating itself as well so like i get it it sometimes the logic is a little confusing but like in terms of a visual stamp on your show i think they work but when you have them like rebooting the uniforms through the course of like a three season show that's kind of weird yeah, I will say this. I thought the uniforms in season one of a card, both in the 2380s and the 2390s, I thought they were legit terrible. Like, just ugly AF. Yeah, I remember, like, we were debating before Picard aired about what, you know, the uniforms could look like. And then we saw them, and it's funny, like, I feel like you and I talked a lot about Discovery uniforms even when Discovery brought in the gray ones briefly and then like the color ones, you know, like we had a lot to say about them. I don't recall us talking about those Picard ones other than, yeah, they don't look that great. Yeah. Um, so, Cam, okay, overall, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm digging. Uh, okay. You were at the halfway point. I think that was the original question. Does this feel like a half point sort of episode? Does it feel as if we're getting some momentum going on into the, the last half of the season? Yes. I would say so far, this is um, stacking up to be, I, I think, the most consistent season of uh, Lower Decks yet. Yeah, like, I don't think we've quite hit the high points of some of the previous seasons. But I think in terms of, like, you know, episode one to where we are now, we haven't had that level of consistency out of the gate. Season one... Um, starts off or off season two started off rough as well whereas i feel like season three we've been on pretty much a steady course so that's genuinely exciting and i just had a quick question for you as a move along home apologist yeah. were you excited to see the wadi back on your star trek if we're being honest i was actually a little confused because these are gamma quadrant aliens and they <laughs> weren't only showcasing their own board game but they also had the uh headset devices from the tng episode the game and so, yeah, that was a joke. Like, you know, stop trying to, like, uh, mess people up with uh, your games. But um, it didn't quite land for me, you know, as somebody who's been deeply missing the Wadi uh, <laughs> for about the last 30 years now. It felt like they could have done a little more, just even like a cutaway to, you know, Boimler and Mariner, like, stuck in a game. Something like that, as opposed to just a quick visual reference. Yeah. All right, sir. Um, maybe if we, I, I've got a little story to share with uh, listeners, and I, I guess you are going to be hearing it uh, for the first time beyond maybe some text mm-hmm. exchanges that we had. But um, I think as listeners, some listeners may know, uh, I, I'm a reporter. That's my job, and um, I, I cover the technology uh, sector here in British Columbia. And uh, 
So I was invited to go on a, uh, a set tour. Uh, we have a big, big film industry here in uh, Vancouver. And uh, they were going to be showcasing, you know, the uh, the LED volume. And for those that aren't quite familiar with what the volume is, but it's what uh, they use for a show like The Mandalorian to create like these alien landscapes. You know, they'll, they'll have sets in the foreground, but you will be surrounded or the actors in the sets are surrounded by these kind of giant cir- circular LED screens that are just like... Um, wrapping their arms around the entire stage and there you are able to use kind of these uh, digitally rendered hyper-realistic looking um, uh, backgrounds uh, and environments and it looks fantastic if you've seen stuff like the Mandalorian it's also used on strange new worlds and uh, I think folks would probably be most familiar with its use in the engine room you've got the uh, engine room sets the physical set there and then it is complemented by kind of the the digital display of what looks to be kind of the uh, never-ending engines that go on on that ship. And so I I was familiar with this technology when uh, folks uh, invited me to do a a demonstration of uh, the largest LED volume stage in all the world. Uh, That's right here in Metro Vancouver. It's about 7,000 square feet. And uh, I jumped on it. I get to the, uh, the studio, and I see that the uh, volume is just set up with kind of um, different colors, like the... um, the LED screens, it looks kind of almost like a, a rainbow spectrum of different colors bleeding into each other. And I looked at it, and I, I asked uh, one of the uh, uh, facilitators there, I was just like, okay, are, are you guys going to be doing something to dazzle me, like like maybe a reel or something? It's like, oh, it won't be a reel, but uh, we will show like an environment, uh, you know, one of the shows that we work on. Um, you know, it's, it's just the engine room from uh, Star Trek. It, it, I'll tell you, my brain was like, holy moly, what? Because the show, or the stage, had been used for uh, the upcoming live-action version of Avatar, The Last Airbender, the uh, TV series for Netflix. And that's what I assumed we'd be getting, like some sort of demonstration for this Netflix series. I did not think I'd be getting a uh, engine room of the 1701 demonstration, because, of course, that's filmed in Toronto. But it's all the same company that does the Toronto stuff, so it's just as easy to kind of like uh, beam that Toronto digital set as it is to get it into Vancouver to watch. So for 90 minutes, Cam, I got to watch the um, virtual production crew um, show you how to adjust colors, how to adjust angles, reveal different angles of the engine room. Um, you can move kind of a camera around and like this kind of control display to reveal um, like different dimensions to the engine pylons and all that. I even got to take this one device and it almost worked like a flashlight. Whenever I like pointed this device at like a certain pylon or a railing or a ladder, um, it would illuminate whatever mm. I was pointing it at. They also showed how you could do different color controls. You know, if you want the set to be a little bit, uh, a little bit bluer or a little bit uh, more purple, uh, how it bounces off the actor's uh, skin. It was very cool. And they also showed how if, you know, uh, they set it up, they designed it so that if uh, you've got like your regular engine going, um, what happens if you're going for a warp core meltdown? And so they switched it from kind of this soft blue-white glow to like this more tense sort of orange hue with like steam and sparks flying. And I just got to wander around this for like 90 minutes as they did all these demonstrations. And Cam, I've, I, 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 I was not expecting this. I, I, I was blown away. Cam, 
Uh, you'll know what I'm talking about here. From my place to uh, deep, deep suburbs of South Burnaby, it it took me uh, like an hour to get out there. And for the longest time, I was just like, oh, okay, like I I'm interested in the technology, but I've got so much work to do today. I was really debating just like flaking out on this uh, set tour. <laughs> and guess what? If I had flaked out on it, I, I never would have known. So I, I could have lived happily not knowing that I would have missed out on this engine room uh, set visit. But the fact that I got there and that's what was greeting me, I was just absolutely blown away. Uh, I, I just like feel like, uh, like, do you remember, okay, the closest thing is, do you remember that time you and I were in San Francisco for a Star Trek convention and one of our dear, dear friends, um, uh, Shelly Ross, um, she just happened to have like a friend who works at Lucasfilm. Yep. And uh, she texted her friend. And the friend's like, yeah, you want to do a, a tour of Lucasfilm? Sure. And you and I were looking at each other like, what the hell? And so you and I got to tour Lucasfilm for like, what, 90 minutes, two hours or something like that. And see just these incredible props. And that, that's the closest I've ever felt to like what I got to do. Uh, just uh, I, I guess it would have been yesterday. We we're recording Friday and I did the set tour on uh, Thursday. And for work, I, I do have a story up uh, on uh, my newspaper's website. So Yep, I would just read it before um, actually we went to air, so I will definitely post that in the show notes. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, yeah, Kim, I don't know, just um, I, exciting for me. Um, um, let me ask you this. Are you incredibly jealous of me? Are, are, you, are you bitter? Are you very bitter <laughs> that uh, Tyler got this experience? Because uh, our Star Trek experiences are usually like the same. Like uh, we'll go to the conventions together. Yeah. We'll go see the movies together. I think this is the biggest time that there's been such a divergence between our Star Trek experiences. Yeah, that's true. No, I mean, when I saw that, I was like, first off, I was so confused. I was like, where is Tyler right now? <laughs> is Tyler like gone to Toronto without telling us? Do you remember the time <laughs> so I went to I went to South Korea without telling anybody? <laughs> Including my my then girlfriend. <laughs> It was funny because yep. uh, for listeners, my, my ex-girlfriend, she was um, backpacking with uh, one of her uh, uh, friends in Ireland. And I, it was just me home alone for like two weeks. And then I suddenly had uh, the opportunity uh, to go on a work trip to Seoul, South Korea. So I didn't tell anybody. And then I just told my ex that uh, I, I said, oh, you know, I don't know what's going on. My phone's weird. So if you don't get text messages for me for like the next 12 hours, uh, don't worry, I'm, I'm okay. And the next thing you know, like we were FaceTiming each other. And she's like, where are you? Because she could see that I was in a hotel room. And then I, I turned around and revealed like the cityscape of uh, Seoul uh, behind me. But anyways, you know me. I, uh, you would not put it past me to just fly out to Toronto and not tell anyone. No, no. Like I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, huh, well, he did say he couldn't record the podcast on the usual day. <laughs> so. <laughs> so no, that sounded very cool. And I've seen... I obviously haven't seen a volume, you know, in person, but I, I was watching, you know, the, the Batman um, 4K Blu-ray special features where they're showing their usage of it there. And it's just mind-blowing because I think you and I complain a lot about, you know, wonky CG or um, we see a lot of bad um, green screen backdrops. And the volume from what I've seen, half the time I'm not even at all aware that it is even there. It's it comes across as so realistic that it's the type of technology I find very exciting because CG, boy, back in the two thousands, so when that became more and more used, it was a cause for concern. Mm -hmm. Whereas the volume, I've been very encouraged and excited by what I've been seeing. It feels like a technological leap that is genuinely producing great stuff. Yeah. So uh 
<laughs> there you go, listeners. Uh, I hope everyone's jealous of me. I'm going to hold it over everyone's head like a total jerk. Uh, no, I promise I won't. But uh, just, just it was so weird in that, like, um, it's not like they invited me because they know that I have a Star Trek podcast. They, they invited me because I'm a technology reporter. So I don't know. That, that, that was awesome. That's all I can say. It would have been amazing if when you got there, they're like, are you a Star Trek fan? And you were like, maybe. Why? <laughs> and they're like, we have a real surprise for you. And then you step in and they blow up the screens and it's Picard's ancestral home <laughs> from uh, Picard season two. <laughs> oh, don't make me cry. That's horrible. That's mean. That's mean. <laughs> and there's like a monster with a crown in the background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... Uh, oh, oh, so I did get a bit of a spoiler for Star Trek Discovery and the use of uh, the volume stage in Toronto. They actually have two volume stages in Toronto. One's quite large. Uh, that's what they use uh, for um, uh, Strange New Worlds. And one is smaller and it's used for like, say, commercials or shorter shoots. But um, uh, and by spoiler, it's not really going to mess anything up. But uh, this is all I will say is that in the upcoming season of Star Trek Discovery, uh, there will be a scene featuring uh, 20 to 40 digital doubles featured within the volume. So there you go, Cam. Digital doubles. Huh. Well, now my mind is just spinning. Are we getting the duplers uh, <laughs> in, in Star Trek Discovery? <laughs> I, I, I think it's something along those lines because one of the questions being asked is like, how easy is it to create um, like human like digital doubles versus you know let's go scan balmoral castle and recreate balmoral castle uh, as a background for a uh, scene in the volume and they were discussing and it's still that uncanny valley sort of deal yeah they said it's very difficult to do digital doubles uh, justice but then they brought up the um the fact that uh, discovery will be doing that in the upcoming season and it's not gonna be like one or two it's gonna be like 20 to 40 of them displayed within the volume. So whatever that is, I'm, I'm very curious what that turns out to be. And honestly, it's going to be you and I and, and listeners, of course, um, like just looking everywhere we can uh, for whatever that scene turns out to be. Yeah, I hope it pays off in an interesting and fun way. I hope so, <laughs> which, too. Which would be a nice surprise. A nice surprise from Discovery. <laughs> interesting and fun. Yes, exactly. I, I wonder if it could even be something like... Um, Hmm. Like, I wonder if it could be something like Klingons or something where they could have like a huge mass of Klingons and you're using doubles for that. Do you think they want to touch on Klingons in the 31st century or is it just going to cause too many headaches with like Worf is coming back and he looks like a regular Klingon? Do they have to explain why it's just like it's this back and forth look you know, between these folks? Right. You know? Yeah, maybe not Klingons. I shouldn't have said Klingons, but just like an alien species. Duplers. You were right. You were right the first time. Duplers. Yeah. An alien species that you don't want to deal with heavy makeup for, you know, a, a massive amount of actors. Oh, so yeah. you would do the digital doubles that way versus like having 40 Michael Burnhams on screen at the same time. <laughs> like that to me is unlikely. So many tears, Cam. <laughs> It'd be a flood of tears <laughs> coming through the volume. That's why they need to do a full out digital background there. It would be like the Ten Commandments. Someone would have to part the Red Sea. <laughs> What of this god complex you speak of, Michael Burnham? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All 
right, sir. Um, yeah, I, I know. If anyone's interested, I've got like a, uh, I don't know, like a, I think I wrote like a thousand words on this. It's not not too long of a read. It'll probably take uh, six or seven minutes. I've got, I've got a, oh, you know what I should have added to readers? I know I'm just describing all of this. The story has a lot of photos mm-hmm. and uh, a video uh, as well, just kind of showcasing how the dimensions move around and the angles can change uh, depending on how somebody is using kind of the... Uh, the remote gear that is able to control it. So um, it's like, I'm, I, Cam, I've been doing this podcast for who knows how many years. I, I've literally never plugged a story before, um, but uh, I'll plug this one. Also, you know what, uh, listeners, I'll also plug another one. Uh, this is what I did over the summer. For issue 1701 of my newspaper, we did a, uh, I, I took it upon myself for issue 1701 to do a story focused on uh, Star Trek in Vancouver, in that uh, we have Lower Decks is animated here. We have the Lower Decks video game, which is uh, developed here. We had uh, visual effects work done for Star Trek Beyond as well. And I just kind of took a dive into what was going on in the realm of Star Trek here on this little corner of our uh, planet. And uh, I, I the reason I didn't really plug that early on is because I didn't want the folks in the business community think that I was only interviewing them not as a reporter, mm. but just in order to kind of boost uh, my, my own um, Star Trek podcast that they may or may not have known of. So, Cam, uh, I'll send you a link for that. And well, might as well, like, it's been months now, so might as well just like um, uh, share a link uh, about this. But those are the only two Star Trek stories I've uh, ever written, and they've all uh, come out in the last uh, two or three months now. Who knows what the future could hold, though? <laughs> I'm on the Star Trek beat now, people. Just wait. <laughs> it's very lucrative, I'm sure. The Star <laughs> Trek beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, journalism. Don't go in it for the money, kids. That's yeah, all that's right. You got to do it for the love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like Star Trek Discovery. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's why we've been covering that show for five years. Just that's for right. the love camp. Uh, uh, okay. Andor? Yeah, let's move on to Andor, or what are we calling it? Cam Dort? Is it or Orton? Or Cam Dorton? Cam, what is it? How, how about Cam Dorton? I like Cam Dorton. Okay. Okay. Oh, you know, uh, we got the first three episodes. They dropped on Disney Plus this past Wednesday, and I think from there it's going to go uh, week to week. Uh, Tony Gilroy has listened to an interview with him in which uh, I, I think he scheduled it out that it's going to wrap around uh, Thanksgiving. And so, uh, yeah, Cam, what are your initial thoughts? Three episodes into Andor. I think it was very clear after watching the first three episodes of Andor why they released the first three episodes of Andor. <laughs> because the first two, I was sitting there going like, I have no idea what this show is. I'm unclear what they're trying to communicate to me. But by the time we got to um, episode three, it was like, okay. It reminded me a lot, actually, of the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery, where <laughs> those two episodes do not exactly give you a great sense of what the show is. I feel like I get what the show is now. Um, I'm not sure on a, as a side note if I'm a big fan of this as a way to start series at this point. It's something that hasn't really clicked with me. But I thought in terms of the visuals of this show, it looks unbelievable. It's frankly insane. It's coming out of the same Star Wars factory that cranked out Obi-Wan, which I thought looked frequently shoddy. This show looks beautiful. I'm really interested to see where they take this sort of darker and grittier and seemingly more adult take on Star Wars. I am genuinely curious to see how it plays to your average Star Wars fan. I think that may prove rather bumpy, 
but I'm intrigued, but I'm also, I guess, slightly confused. Uh, I'm going to reverse myself just a little bit and say that I think Cam Dort sounds even cooler than Cam Dorton. Let's go with Cam Dort. Fair enough. Let's do that. And that's my way of trying to vamp as I... I, I I would be the biggest hypocritical, like, fraud if I didn't point out that this is clearly Tony Gilroy decided I'm going to make a 12-hour movie. Mm-hmm. And that is something that you and I have been complaining about. And as I watched those first three episodes, I kept thinking, like, um, am I an idiot? I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I, it, it's incredibly dense. I didn't know uh, certain connections trying to be made between characters. I like some like guy with an English accent really into this woman with more of a uh, Latin accent, and he's so into her, he's gonna run right up to guys with guns and get shot. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's some motivation that I was not expecting. Um, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, he's always amazing. Uh, he's playing a real cool character here. I don't quite know what's going on with that. Um, I just, Cam, this is like, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, I, I feel like an idiot. Um, am I alone? I don't think you're alone. Um, in fact, I felt actually very similar to watching, you see, the first three to me se- seem to set up like, okay, basically he's being recruited for the rebellion. It's going to be something that we then recognize. But like, there was a teaser at the end of episode one, at the, well, not a teaser, but at the very end of the episode, it showed like, you know, Andor a flashback as a child, like walking off and leaving his sister behind. And then it just cut to credits. And I was like, did they just tease something that I don't understand at all? Yeah. And I actually rewound and watched it again. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're telling me. And it's I, like Riker falling asleep. <laughs> yes, it was. It reminded <laughs> me a lot, honestly, of um, the premiere, the first episode of the new Lord of the Rings show, where I watched that and I was like, I have no idea what I just watched for the last hour. And I, I talked to my dad the next day and I was like, hey, did you watch the Lord of the Rings first episode? He's like, I, I was so confused. I'm going to have to watch it again. And I felt like Andor was doing something similar where I just was like, it's almost like they're just dropping you in the middle of something and waiting for you to find your own bearings in it. And it's a strategy like, I don't know if it works. I guess, you know, the proof will be the long-term success of these shows. For me, I find it frustrating as someone who wants to be able to follow along with a story. I don't really like spending a lot of time trying to even figure out what the show is. But that said, I remember watching the first episode of DS9 and also kind of walking away, scratching my head after that one, and look where that show goes. So I don't know. The, the, the most successful uh, it, it's series to ever just drop, you know, audiences into a universe for me is The Wire. Mm. But when I remember watching The Wire, I think the uh, – I started just after the fourth season had wrapped, and everybody, all the critics, uh, couldn't stop talking about how it was, it was literally the best show ever made. And I was like, okay – that's interesting. Uh, and the, the show was watched by virtually no one at the time, you know. And so I was one of the few that actually watched it while the final season was airing. And so I, I start with the first, like, episode. I'm like, okay, I get what's going on. It, it's HBO's version of, like, a, you know, cop drama slash, you know, like a crime series. You're, you're, you're covering the cops, the prosecutors, the um, criminals all at once. And they really drop you into this universe. 
If I was watching the, uh, the Wire week to week, it would have been incredibly confusing and frustrating. But the fact is, I got to binge watch it. And so, despite how frustrated I was in, within the first like two or three episodes of The Wire, I'd say by the f- halfway mark of The Wire, I got on its rhythm. I figured out what it was doing. And I never questioned any of those critics who proclaimed it to be the best series ever made. It, it, it totally sucked me in, and it totally made sense why they were going about that manner. I don't think that's what Andor is. And that's what I'm very fearful of. I think it is Tony Gilroy, who is a filmmaker I, I greatly respect. I think he wants to do kind of uh, an adult version of Star Wars, which we've all been longing for. And look, uh, it's not like I didn't enjoy sitting there watching these episodes. Like, it, it wasn't painful to watch. It's mostly just a little um, uh, I, uh, distressing. I, I don't even know if that's the, quite the right word, but it, it was... It, it was a, a tough experience because I just felt like as if tons of things that should have been obvious were just going over my head, and I, I, I don't know. Like, like it, it, it was a frustrating experience. I, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt because he is a great filmmaker. But I'll, I'll say this, Cam. There, there was an interview that I heard him do uh, just this past week. Uh, I guess for listeners, it'd be last week now, in which he's like, "I knew exactly how I wanted to start this season." I knew exactly where we wanted to go by the end. I just had to figure out that mushy middle. And mm. I was like, uh, okay. So, so far, I've seen what you wanted to do yeah. to start the season. Um, it didn't quite work for me. Maybe episode four will we'll turn that around. Um, and whenever I hear, hmm, I need to figure out what to do in the mushy middle, that just screams season two of uh, Star Trek Picard, you know, yeah. where they clearly didn't know what to do. And then they're just stretching it out. So that's why I'm very fearful going forward. Um, if he's got a banger of a conclusion for those final four episodes, hey, I you know I will eat crow. I hope I'm wrong. So far, as you said, Cam, the show looks beautiful. There are things to like. I really like uh, Diego Luna as your uh, main character here. I I think the antagonist, the the prissy little security corporate security guy. Yeah. I think he's fantastic. Yes. I'm loving every bit of that. Um, Stellan Skarsgård is amazing. I, 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 yeah, production values out of this world. But beyond that, I am, uh, I'm struggling with this show. And I was, I, I guess I was just too, were our expectations too high, Cam? I don't know that they were high, but I guess to me, the issue was more Star Wars typically at its best is a story designed to sweep you along. Whereas this story kind of holds you at, at a certain distance. And that's not something I'm generally used to with Star Wars storytelling. So I found myself kind of sitting there going like, what is this show trying to do? Because it felt kind of aloof. There was all that stuff you mentioned with the relationship between, you know, those those two individuals on the show where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm watching. Like, I don't really understand what's going on. And that's just like frustrating to, to see. And it's not something that's typical. Star Wars is usually very clean storytelling that's designed. And like, you can look at the original A New Hope that show has, or that movie has very dark elements to it. It's not like Star Wars doesn't delve into dark material, but usually it has like a simplicity and a like just concise nature to its storytelling that really wasn't, you know, happening here. And so I'm going to have to kind of, I guess, readjust my expectations in terms of Star Wars storytelling because this feels, there was points of this where I was like watching a Terrence Malick film. Where I'm like, I can, characters are almost like mumbling. I'm watching nature shots and I'm going, what am I watching? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, so it wasn't just me, like, struggling with the dialogue, right? Like, it it was like, at first I thought, am I just struggling with, like, the plot? But also, it's just like, 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 I've struggled with the dialogue. I don't think it's just, like, uh, because the show is filmed in London, and so they have a lot of, like, great British actors uh, attached to the series. I don't think it was the accents. It's just like, wait, what are people saying? Like, huh? Well, it's like, um, it reminded me of, um, you know, how, like, if you watch something like Aaron Sorkin does, how he'll drop you into something and people will be throwing around jargon. And at first you're confused, but by the end you're like, I know exactly what everyone's talking about. Think of, like, Moneyball, for example. It felt like they were trying that approach here, but it was just really confusing and not in a way where I was sitting forward being like, oh, I'm really trying to pick this up. This is really interesting to me. Yeah, um... Also, like, there's a big difference between, like, hearing English words you understand and then hearing, like, uh, how many queek quacks for that <laughs> micmac? <laughs> I'm just like, I <laughs> I thought the best scene in the first three episodes, and there's some actually great action, actually, at the end of the episode three, but um, was that character you're referring to, uh, Cyril Karn, played by Kyle Soller, the antagonist, I guess, of the season, with his boss, where his boss is basically explaining how to yeah. basically talk away um, a murder that we see at the start of the series. And I thought that sequence, that little dialogue exchange, was perfect. Like, note perfect writing and delivery. And it got me really on board with that antagonist. And so I found his general journey through these first three episodes was what kept me going. Because I don't know that there was a lot otherwise, because Andor, I'm interested in that character, but what we've seen from him so far has been kind of murky. Well, the thing that I'm looking forward to most that like more than anything else in episode four is what the fallout means of this botched mission for Karn. Like, like he sounds, it sounds like he's screwed. Like he went on a mission that he was told not to do. He took it upon himself with bosses on uh, at some sort of conference to do this. Uh, People got killed. He failed to capture the murderer uh, what happens to this fellow next? Do you think he's an antagonist of the season, or do you think it was an antagonist for these like first three episodes? Like, uh, here's here's the thing. It's like you you need to introduce your antagonist relatively early on in in a journey. Uh, we're pretty much at the uh, at the end of the first act of mm-hmm. this twelve episode series. So you'd think you'd know who the antagonist is by now. So, uh, but like on a surface level, it'd be more like, okay, so what Joss Whedon used to always do on like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I thought was really great is um, every season you're you're introduced to an antagonist at the start of the season. But what it really was is more like a mini boss and Mm -hmm. you're introduced to the so-called big bad uh, a little bit later on. And I wonder if that's what this is. You know, he's more of the mini boss that'll lead up to the big bad. I think that makes sense because if this is a show built around kind of the formation of the rebellion, I don't know that this guy would pose too much of a threat to a building rebellion. But I kind of like that you have a character like this, you know, just the the stuffy bureaucrat dweeb, you know, causing problems. Who's not with the Empire. Yeah. Because like we've seen the Empire exhausted um, in recent years, like Disney since taking that over has just been milking all these elements of the original trilogy, and it was kind of cool just to see something that exists outside of the Empire as an antagonist? It's called, like, literally corporate security, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I I thought that was fascinating, though. Like, it seems like, clearly, Tony Gilroy has a lot of 
ideas swimming up in his head, uh, especially just how this universe like looks and feels and unfolds. You know, so I, look, I, 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 I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt still. Uh, I, I'm still interested in what this series is going to be like over the course of 12 episodes. I can't imagine it being more painful to watch than season two or season uh, of Picard or season four of Discovery. So I, I'm in it here. I just, I think you and I were both a little bit like, we, we felt like pack leads after watching these <laughs> first three episodes. I mean, I found it more encouraging watching these first three than uh, the three episode point of Obi Wan, like at that point, I was like, I'm watching kind of generic fan service. That if you were to like give me a test right now to answer questions about Obi Wan season one, I would get a lot of wrong answers because that show was just such a vapor to me. Whereas at least this one, I feel kind of a little baffled by it, but still compelled to try to figure out what it is. Like, I hope it is something I hope it delivers, because if it doesn't deliver, it could be a very murky, confusing mess. Well, it, that's just it. This is the problem if you want to do a 12-hour movie, which all these like cinematic filmmakers, whenever they try television, they, it, it's as if they feel embarrassed that they're doing TV or something. They're like, oh, no, I'm making a 12-hour movie, or an 8-hour movie, or a 6-hour movie. Yeah. And guess what? The best television shows... Um, we're talking about, uh, The Sopranos, uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, uh, The Wire, you know, Deadwood. Um, none of those creators set out to make, you know, 12 hour movies. Yeah. They set out to make television for the sake of television. Those shows look cinematic. The writing was amazing. Just because it wasn't on the big screen didn't mean that it was not exceptional. And I think that's what's kind of being lost on a lot of these, um, cinematic storytellers turned television storytellers. Can you imagine if they'd released these first three episodes one week apart? <laughs> okay. we, we would be uh, even more confused discussions uh, going on than what we have right now. And this week we'd be talking about episode one, and it would be general confusion. Next week, we'd be even more confused because like episode two <laughs> of the first three was maybe <laughs> the least amount of content in an episode I, to date. Like I was like, uh. what just happened in this like, 32 minutes <laughs> they're blow darts you know we saw blow darts yeah yeah we did see blow darts i, I will say this is so for the canary language i actually think what gilroy is doing there and like you don't need to have subtitles to understand what's going on i, I think that's kind of mm -hmm. testament to good storytelling and filmmaking you, you can understand this story uh regardless of you know whether you're seeing subtitles but Cam, can i ask is why why not have subtitles I don't know, because Star Wars does have a history of subtitling yeah. alien languages, so it's not like you would be introducing something out of nowhere. Like, that was right from day one, and I did see a lot of complaints about that online, um, and it seemed like generally, because I actually went over to, like, the Star Wars, the official Star Wars Facebook page and things like that and checked comments, it seemed people were generally into the show. There was a number of people who were complaining that it was dull and boring. You'd see those terms over and over again, but, like... The people that were into it seemed to really like it, but they all tended to point to the um, subtitles as something they would have liked to have had a little more understanding of actually what was going on versus just kind of just judging it by visual storytelling. I think it works with visual storytelling, but I think people wanted a little more sense of maybe character just by understanding the words that were coming out of these various characters' mouths. Okay. So, Kim, I'm going to try to summarize the plot 
I don't know why I just turned the word summarize into two words just now, but um, I'm going to try to summarize the plots. And please jump in. Please jump in here. Uh, I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. But Cassian Andor is looking for his sister. Mm-hmm. He, in that process, kills two uh, jerk corporate security guards. And then that sets off this deputy inspector to search for this murderer. Yep. In the meantime, Cassian Andor is trying to book passage off a planet and score some uh, cash. And he's going to sell off a piece of Imperial technology that he stole. Yep. And this creates interest from the Selling Skarsgård character who we think is trying to recruit him uh, to be like a uh, uh, a spy uh, against the Empire. And it all culminates with the uh, corporate security team uh, issuing a warrant and coming down on uh, this uh, community and... Uh, Andor and Stellan Skarsgård escaping. Is that broad strokes correct? Yeah, that all sounds completely correct to me. It's the overall like story that we've had. It's actually very little story. So like, I feel like, yes, you've summed it up. It's more like the scene to scene details that tends to lose you. Okay. Well, (laughs) all that said, I'm still looking forward to what we get in episode four. Yeah. You know, look, I'm intrigued by the show. Like, Kim, we, we, we thought Star Trek uh, Picard Season 2 is terrible. We could not wait to see what each episode would hold week to week. I don't think Andor is terrible. No. I, I, and so that that's one of the key differences here. So just because you're having issues with the show doesn't mean you're not intrigued by what's going to happen next. Yeah, like it was the type of thing where I was like, okay, I don't really get what I just watched. But by the end of Episode 3, it also felt like, was this just kind of like a prologue to what the show is? I guess we'll find out next week and going forward. But that's how it kind of felt to me by the time I'd finished it. Okay. Well, Ken, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, I guess uh, uh, you can find us on Facebook, subspace uh, at uh, Facebook. Uh, okay, oh, I don't know. You always do the Facebook stuff. What is <laughs> I can't even remember at this point. Yes, yeah, so you can, of course, find us on Facebook.com slash subspacepod. And next week we'll be back, of course, with a review of Episode 6 of Lower Decks Season 3 and Andor Episode 4. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in volume. Sounds awesome. Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N is in no volume set visit for Cameron. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.